to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one in the seat back there in front of you that you might want to uh, t- uh, turn around there too. Or if you just want to grab your smartphone, you can Google the Gospel of John 7. It'll pull that up for you. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to begin into the next section of the Gospel of John, started in the Gospel of John way back on the first Sunday of January and have been in and out of John over these intervening months, and today we're going to go back into it and we're going to kind of persist on with the Gospel of John for a couple of months. And and here, we find ourselves at chapter 7, verse 40. And now, a month ago, when we left off at verse 39, Jesus had stood up in front of a crowd of people, and He had made a declaration that they all wanted to debate about, that they were probably not so happy about. It, it was during uh, the last day, the most important day of, the, uh, of this festival that they were all attending, the Festival of Shelters. And, it, and he stood up and he made this declaration that if anybody was really thirsty, that they could come to him and that they would drink like there were well springs of living water gushing out of their own souls. And, and Jesus, the, then the Gospel of John, the, the writer John, gives us this little commentary that he's actually speaking about the presence of God in people's lives, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. And, and so let me pick up here at verse 40. And I'm going to read down through chapter 8, verse 1, uh, the, the, way, the way that we have all of our chapters and verses divided here, a little, uh, a little awkward, but I'm going to go from chapter 7, verse 40, to chapter 8, verse 1. When some of the crowd, some from the crowd heard these words, they said, truly, this truly is the prophet. And others said, this is the Messiah. But some said... Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the Scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided, and because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him? And the servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Let me ask God to bless the hearing of His Word today. Father, we know, we believe that Your Word is powerful. It's like a sword that, that pierces the heart. It, it reveals to us who you are, and it also will reveal to us who we are. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand you and ourselves in a passage like this today. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, I have a- entitled this message, The Great Debate. 
uh, not uh, fully being cognizant of what would have happened over the last week uh, of our lives as a country. So whether or not it is that you have been watching MSNBC or Fox News, whether it is that you read online the uh, Breitbart or the uh, or Huffington Post, uh, whether it is that you vote one way or another way, this has been a, a, a week or two of intense debate in the life of our country. It is emblematic as to the way that most of our lives progress. Uh, there's always stuff to debate about. Uh, I think about my friend John Gregory here on the, the front row, our associate pastor. Uh, as all of you know, John and I uh, root for a certain football team. Uh, roll Tide. Roll Tide. And there is this one particular Saturday in the year known as the Iron Bowl when Alabama plays this other team. Father, I want to pray against… We need, we need a hedge of protection or something. It is an intense rivalry. Uh, just as uh, there are all sorts of intense rivalries in, in the world of sports, whether it's uh, the Gators and the Seminoles or it is uh, the New York Yankees and the Red Sox. Red Sox. Uh, John is also our baseball resident, baseball expert. Uh, there are all these things that we debate about. Uh, maybe it's not sports that you find yourself debating about. Maybe it's politics. Uh, maybe it's about a particular hobby that you and another person kind of see things differently. Uh, maybe there are debates that go on uh, wildly and, and uh, with a lot, of, uh, a lot of passions inside of your home or inside of your workplace. Uh, we are a people that debate. Uh, we like the give and take of ideas. Uh, we, we like to, unfortunately, we like to win. Uh, we like to be the one who comes out on top. We like to crush our enemy oftentimes uh, beneath our, you know, our, our mental prowess. But we are a people that we like to, to make sure that we understand what the truth is, or at least we want everybody else to understand what we think the truth is. You know, that Alabama is better than whoever, that the, the Yankees are better than the whatnot, that my hobby is better than your hobby, that, that my opinions about uh, politics are better than the other people's opinions. Uh, there's always this debate that goes on. And, and here in this passage, we find ourselves at a very unique spot of the Gospel of John where the crowd is debating about a person who is actually doesn't seem to be present. This is one of the few places in the Gospel of John where Jesus, like, isn't actually there. Uh, or if he is, he's kind of standing off to the side not saying anything. Uh, he's being observed. He's not entering into the conversation. So it does make it a little bit of an unusual passage that we find ourselves in because the Gospel of John is given to us for the, the very specific reason to highlight how Jesus is divine. Each one of the four Gospels kind of looks at the life of Jesus through a specific lens, like the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the four Gospels, it is really written toward a Jewish mindset to help the Jewish people understand that Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for. Whereas John, the fourth of the four Gospels, uh, is, is there to help us to understand that this is not just a guy who's come along on the scene. This really is the divine Son of God. And, and so Jesus has presented himself, and debate ensues. 
And the opinions about Jesus by this group are the opinions that people have kind of always held about who Jesus is. Nothing has really changed. And they highlight what we see here in this passage is that there are three distinct ideas of who Jesus might be. The first is, they say, well, is he the prophet? It says that there in verse 40. When the crowds heard these words from Jesus talking about streams of living water coming from within him, they said, this truly is the prophet. Now, most likely, they are referring back uh, to a passage that was written many, 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 many centuries earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. That is a real word. You can look it up. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where through uh, the life of Moses, uh, God makes a prophecy that there would be a prophet, one particular prophet who would arise that everyone would need to follow. And so some of the people said, this has got to be this prophet. And through the years, the intervening years between Moses and when Jesus comes, this, this kind of character of the prophet, people had leapt off of the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament Scriptures, and they had created kind of this caricature, kind of almost the, kind of this cartoon, kind of epic hero kind of version of what the prophet would be, now, that he would be somebody who would come through and he would trounce society, and he would be the one who would ride in a white horse, and he would conquer everything, that he would be the one who would stand against the powers of the, po- of the politic. And so they said, well, maybe this is the prophet. He's the, the, the cultural warrior we've been waiting for. Other people, though, said, uh, others said, it says there in verse 41, this is the Messiah. Uh, here's the real believers. Here are the people who, who stand and say, uh, we've watched him, we've heard from him, and we actually believe that he's the fulfillment of of everything that that the priests have been teaching us, everything that we've been waiting for, that Jesus really is who Jesus says He is, that He really is the Savior of the world. But then there is uh, another group, the Pharisees, who believe He's a fraud, because they then begin to make fun of the fact that He's actually from Galilee, you know, kind of this backwater kind of place, kind of like I don't know, uh, where I grew up, uh, Roebuck uh, suburb outside of Birmingham, kind of this place that, you know, nothing good ever comes out of Roebuck. I mean, come on. I mean, growing up in Birmingham, we lived on the wrong side of Birmingham. Every, all the good stuff came out of Hoover and Homewood and Vestavia Hills, uh, you know, all those places that had pretty names, not Roebuck. And so it was kind of like, there's no way that the Messiah would come from this place. He's got to be a fraud. He is pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. Essentially, they were saying, uh, these, these groups were saying, he's either this spiritual leader that we've been waiting for who's going to make a difference in culture, or he's a con artist, or he is the real deal. But no matter what you think about who Jesus is, you've got to deal with him. You have to have an opinion on him. Uh, That's one of the things that I notice all throughout the Gospel of John, and really throughout all of the four Gospels, throughout all of the the early writings that we have of the church, is that when Jesus' life is presented, either He's physically still there prior to His ascension to heaven, or it's the church presenting the message of Jesus, the one thing that you don't have latitude to do is have no opinion. Uh, You've got to have some opinion on who Jesus is. No matter what you think, the possibility to simply dismiss Jesus is really not open uh, for our options. I would say in a very real sense, in a logical sense, Jesus is the most divisive person in history. 
Not in the sense that he's trying to be mean, but in the sense of he is divisive in terms of how or whether or not we accept him. When you accept Christ, you're making a declaration about who you are, about who we are, about what humanity is, and, and about our needs. And when you reject Christ, when you reject the idea that you need a Savior, that you need your sins forgiven, I mean, this is a divisive moment for us. The opinions that people held about Jesus then really are the opinions that are held today. So I want to put a question in front of you that I think is critical for this hour as it is for every hour. And that is, who do your friends say that Jesus is? Who do your friends say that Jesus is? This is the question that you've got to contend with. Now, by virtue of the fact that you're here, that you're in a worship service, uh, that many of you have been members of this church or a church for many, many years, that you made a profession of faith perhaps a long time ago or a short time ago, maybe like this young man this morning, you've been baptized in order to say, yes, I am part of the family, I'm professing my faith publicly. Uh, you made a decision a long time ago uh, about who Jesus is, that you, you decided that His claims, that He's the Messiah, He's the Savior, He's risen from the dead, that He is the Lord Creator, that those claims hold up, and you want to put your faith in Him. So it's one thing for us to say that, especially in the safe confines of 1306 Manatee Avenue West, Worship Center of First Baptist Church of Bradenton, uh, age 128. It's kind of easy to do it here. The question is, outside of these walls, who do your friends say that Jesus is? And I, I want to put before you that this is not a question in their life. This is the question of their life. Uh, there are lots of questions that people have. You know, is it better to vote this way or that way? Are we going to go for tacos or are we going to go for Italian for lunch? Uh, should I move to this house or to that house? Is it time to retire now or am I going to wait a few years? I mean, there's all sorts of questions that we have to ask and answer. Some are incredibly important and others are, you know, pedestrian and really doesn't matter if you have tacos or, or lasagna later. But this is a question that sits high above all of them. And, and there's not even a close second. It, it's not as if the question of who do your friends think Jesus is, and then right behind it is some other philosophical worldview kind of thing. I mean, it's first place so far outpaces second place. I mean, this is uh, by a factor that we cannot even begin to imagine. This is the most important question. It is the, the answer that will define both a person's life and their entire eternity. One of the reasons that uh, I was so happy for uh, my friend Dennis Pethers to be with us again last Sunday and, and bring a message is that he always reminds me and he reminds us that this question uh, is lingering in the culture, but not always necessarily actively in people's minds. There are plenty of people who have not chosen against Jesus. They've made no choice. They've not been told the story of Jesus. They've not been talked with about Jesus. They're not aware of Jesus. And though that seems radically just like so far out of the framework of our minds, 
it is relatively true. Dennis tells this uh, really great story that several years ago, his wife, Lynn, who is a school teacher of elementary, what would be equivalent to elementary age school kids there in uh, east of London where they live, that they were making a field trip uh, with a group of their kids. And because uh, the United Kingdom at this point is even less religious than, than uh, many other Western cultures, there's very few people who attend church any longer in the United Kingdom. Uh, in the public education system, they actually, in elementary school, they educate the kids about the various world religions. They study Christianity, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism. They study about Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, all from kind of an academic standpoint. And so the, there was a group of kids from one of the schools that was going to make a field trip uh, to one of the Catholic cathedrals. And, and, and so this group of elementary school kids went to this Catholic cathedral, and very recently the priest had led his parishioners uh, to do some, some fixing up around the cathedral. It was time to fix a few things, get some stuff that was old out, replace some things. And one of the things that they replaced was actually the crucifix. And they had spent what was equivalent to about 15,000 U.S. dollars on a brand new crucifix that was hanging, obviously, very prominently in their building. Big cross with Jesus there hung, dying on the cross. And as these elementary school kids were given this tour of this Catholic cathedral, one of the little boys walked up to the priest and grabbed him by the robe and began to shake it. And the priest was trying to give a lecture. He was trying to talk about something important. So he swatted the little boy away, told him he'd answer his question in a moment. He keeps talking about the church and what the church does. And the little boy continues to tug at his robe. And so finally, the priest stops what he's saying. He looks down at the little boy and he says, son, what is it that you want? And the little boy points up at the crucifix and he says, who's that bloke on the wall? I mean, this is the centerpiece of the entire cathedral. This is the one reason for which supposedly the whole thing, mechanism, exists. And here's a little boy who says, I don't even, I, I've never even seen one of those before. Like, who is that guy? What is that guy doing? And this central question that will define a person's life and, a, and define a person's eternity, there are some people that don't even know that they need to answer the question yet, and we need to carry with us the very message of who Christ is. We need to be the ones who carry this conversation to them because Jesus has stood up and he, sa and he has said, if anybody is thirsty, if you've got a spiritual thirst, if you'll come to me, there'll be wellsprings of living water that will burst forth from you. And he's signifying that if you'll come to me, I'll give you new life. And the, and the very power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity will take up residence in your life and there are some people who really like the religious debate, so they want to know, is he a spiritual kind of character? Is he a con artist, or is he the real deal? But then there are so many in our culture that are not asking any of this. And that's where I reach what I think is the saddest portion of this entire story. Uh, the, part of the reason, I, I do think that uh, verse 53 and then the first verse of chapter 8, that they all do, go together into this one story, and I want you to see what it is that happens after Nicodemus speaks. Nicodemus is one of the teachers. He, he gets vilified for uh, defending Jesus, as it were. And then it says there in verse 53, Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The greatest tragedy 
is not that people debate about the identity of Jesus. This is not the greatest tragedy. Uh, now, sometimes we get our feelings hurt, that people debate about who Jesus is, that people want to say, well, I don't believe, or I think he was just a good guy, or, or I'm not even so sure that he actually lived, he's just a myth of history, or he is one way among many ways to heaven. And, and, and so we need to enter into the conversations. But the greatest tragedy is not that people are debating about the identity of Jesus. The greatest tragedy is that people simply return to their normal lives as if Jesus does not matter. It says everybody went to their house. That's what the great tragedy is, is that everybody was confronted with Jesus' claims, and his claims were huge. His, his claims were, had eternal significance. His claims were about the very essence of who he was. They had this debate, is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? Is he just a, a fraud? And then it says, and everybody went home. This is the great tragedy, is that people think that they can just go back to their normal lives without having made some kind of decision, when in fact, uh, they have made a decision. Uh, they have declared something about who Jesus is. They, they have looked into his life and they have decided, ah, he's not worth it. He, he must be a fraud or he, maybe he's a spiritual entity of some sort, but he certainly isn't somebody that I need to follow. This is the great tragedy. And sometimes we as believers in the modern age, we get all in a kerfuffle inside of ourselves because people want to debate with us about who Jesus is, because they're, they're not so sure, because they want, to, they want to know whether or not you're right, or, or is the atheist right, or is the scientist right, is the, is the humanist correct, is the Muslim or the Buddhist or the person who has taken a little bit of every world religion and, and mixed it all together, is that person right, is Deepak Chopra right, is Oprah Winfrey right, is Dr. Phil right? You know, who's right about this? And we get all lathered up because people want to debate. I'm, this is the place where you step in, that you don't step back. You step into the conversation. You lean in in order to help guide people to the truth of who Jesus claimed himself to be. The great tragedy is when people walk away and they go home like it's no big deal. Maybe even more tragic when it's the Christians who go home like the conversation was no big deal. Well, they'll get it later. Well, somebody else will tell them. Well, I planted a seed. Well, uh, well you know, I did what I could. Uh, well, I don't want to make an enemy out of them. Well, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Well, I don't want to press too hard. And then suddenly we find ourselves having not given a witness because we've wimped out on the whole thing, and we're the ones who went home. Meanwhile, Jesus keeps ministering. When all of this is over, uh, this big festival that has gone on, uh, this big thing that has happened in the life of the Jewish people where he has shown up in the middle of it and he has declared something revolutionary and radical, everybody else goes home. He goes to the Mount of Olives because there's still ministry to be done. We're not even halfway through his public ministry at this point. And that's what I think ought to be the call in our lives. You see, the call to believers here is to keep ministering in the real world with real answers about a real Savior among real people. This is not an, an, an academic debate that just happened among a few people, uh, a, you know, a bunch of centuries ago. Uh, this is not a pretend philosophical encounter 
that happens that nobody really thought that there was anything on the line with. I mean, this was a group of Jewish people who, had been, who, who were doing what had been done for over 14 centuries of practicing the festival of the shelters, all right? They had been doing it just as generation after generation after generation preceding them had done it. They were committed to trying to celebrate that God is the one who gives provision, that God is the one who gives protection, that God is the one who gives deliverance. This is what their, their ancestors had been doing. They were actually serious about this whole thing, and this is a real debate that happens among real people about whether or not Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, was really the Savior or not, or whether he was a flake that stood up and interrupted the most important day of one of their most important religious celebrations. And so the call to you and me is to keep ministering in the real world with real answers about a real Savior among real people, because they have a real destiny. Every person that we meet has is, is got a, an eternal destination. Jesus knows this. This is why He is willing to make these grand claims about Himself, is because your eternal destination matters. And as does your neighbors, as does your bosses, as does your grandkids, as does uh, the immigrant in our county, uh, and, and the person and the foreigner that we've not met yet, and the, the person who is uh, the giant of empire and the lowliest one in poverty, because these real people matter to a real Savior, that they get the real answer that, that in this real world that has trouble and problems and travail, that there's hope. It is why, on this particular date, 145 years ago, uh, a little lady that was uh, historically recorded as not even being five feet tall uh, by the name of Charlotte Lottie Diggs Moon went to China. Every year, if you're a Southern Baptist or been around a Southern Baptist church for any length of time, uh, you know that every year during the Christmas season, we receive an offering uh, that is named after Lottie Moon for international mission work. This year, we'll do it again. We'll set a goal. We'll uh, collect uh, offerings and tithes to help our international missionaries. 145 years ago today, Lottie landed in China, and she spent the next 39 years of her life living in relative abject poverty, but telling the people in two particular, two particular provinces about Jesus. At one point, and uh, she was an avid writer, uh, often wrote letters back uh, to her home church and to Southern Baptist as a whole. She was a huge influence, uh, certainly for the role of uh, unmarried women into the mission field, but also just had a huge role of leadership, of, of plowing new ground for mission work worldwide. She wrote this one time to her Southern Baptist family, so she wrote it to us. She said, the needs of these people press upon my soul, and I cannot be silent. It is grievous to think that these human souls going down to death without even one opportunity of hearing the name of Jesus. Once more, I urge upon the consciences of my Christian brethren and sisters the claims of these people among whom I dwell. Here I am, working alone in a city of many thousand inhabitants, with numberless villages clustered around or stretching away in the illuminate distance. 
How many can I reach? Why are the laborers so few? Where we have four, we should have not less than 100. Are these wild words? They would not seem so were the church of God awake to her high privilege and her weighty responsibilities. This is a woman who understood that the, the, the answers that came from a real Savior get delivered to real people in the real world. And I want to challenge you this morning uh, to answer for yourself uh, this question. Who is Jesus? Have you certainly and, and completely and utterly trusted in Him for the salvation of your own soul? Uh, have you sought forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Now, I, I want you to pray, if you have not, and call upon the name of Christ who has died for our sins and who has risen from the dead, that He can forgive you and restore you into right fellowship with God, that He can give to you an eternal inheritance uh, of salvation. So, it is that we pray for our own souls. But it's also that we pray for the souls of our neighbors. It is that we would be willing to cry out and call out for them very specifically, uh, very intimately, uh, very passionately, and very urgently that, that this neighbor of yours, this grandchild, this cousin, this spouse, this child, this coworker, this person down the hallway from you, this person in the next cubicle over, that you would cry out to God uh, with, with great tears uh, where necessary, weeping and, and, and sobbing over the fact that they are lost, uh, that, that they would be counted among one of these groups that would say, well, that guy, that Jesus, he's, that's just a flake and just a big con artist, or, you know, maybe he's a spiritual guy, but does it really matter? And, and that we could just traipse through life so easily and just go home? But instead, that we would be heavy burden for the souls of men. So I, I want to encourage you that if you find yourself here today and you've not really considered that Jesus really is the Messiah, that you, you cry out on behalf of your own soul and say to God, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be cleansed. I, I want to be brought into your family. I want to put my faith in Jesus who has died for me. If you find yourself that you are saved, that you would cry out on behalf of the, the, the neighbors and the people that are in your life, that you know, you absolutely know they're not saved, and yet you find yourself going in and out of conversations and interactions with them too easily without ever having mentioned your faith or the impact of, of their sin upon their eternity and what Jesus can do about that. But thinking about Lottie... And thinking about the majority of the world that is still yet lost, I, I would ask for believers to pray one other thing, and that is about your call to mission and ministry. There are those in this room right now that you could drop everything that you're doing, and you know you should, because they are normal and pedestrian, and you are turning the crank on the machinery of your life, and everything's going just fine, but you have felt the yearning and the calling that God has placed on your life to something else. 
And for some of you, that might mean that it's time to move to a mission field. For some of you, it might mean that uh, the interaction that this church has had historically and presently with church plants, that you're supposed to go and join one and be a part of something that's new, where the gospel seeds are being planted in places where it's hard soil and where the gospel hasn't been spoken very well. There's some of you that are in a stage of your life where you don't have work responsibilities anymore, but you could do a two- or three-year stint with the International Mission Board in some far-flung place in the world where the gospel's really needed in a big mega city or out in a village somewhere. For those of you that are young and young adults and teenagers, it's the opportunity for you to think about what are you going to do with the first few years of your adulthood? All of us will tell you uh, it doesn't get any easier, you know. (laughs) This might be the really awesome opportunity for you to give up two years of your life of what you thought were going to be the plans to work that job or do that thing and, and abandon yourself to the worldwide global mission of God. And that's true from the youngest to the oldest among us. The question is, will we cry out to Jesus for it? Because we're all smart people. I've met us. We're smart people. I mean, you guys can make all sorts of really great decisions. The question is, will you make the decision that is in line with the mission of God? Or will you make a decision that's simply in line with what will make your life comfortable and easy? Because it's way more comfortable and easy to just go home. That's what's comfortable and easy. Just don't have the debate. Don't enter in. Just go home. But what is worthy, what is beautiful, what is worth celebrating is when we lean into the mission of God and we introduce Jesus to a person who's in need and we present the glory of the gospel and of forgiveness and of grace and of mercy. So let's pray about that. Will you bow your heads?